All right, so today we are talking about how do you test your idea without actually quitting your job. Another way you could say it is how do you know something's going to work before you actually do it, which is kind of this golden question when it comes to the entrepreneurial world. There's this whole line of thought around product validation and early testing. And I'd love to start here because oftentimes some of these best practices aren't even known and they can go a really long ways. So I want to open it up. Anybody have a good, good example or a point in their career where you've dug into some of this testing? And can you just describe, especially for listeners who maybe haven't gone down this road or researched it before, what the core building blocks of good product viability testing are? From my perspective, coming from the engineering side and just the coding side, it's it's really easy just to jump right in and coding and start coding. But it is a piece of, I have hundreds of ideas that have not worked out because I just started building and didn't really understand the need or if there was a need or if there was a market outside of myself. Shoot, even a few times I started building and I wasn't even the market. That being said, I I read a book several years ago that talked about a painted door test. And in this idea, it's really just you build the door, but don't build the building yet. You go see if there's any attraction, any attention. And so it's really the idea of building a landing website throwing a few concepts together. I'm not a graphic designer. I found some cool tools that make me look better than I am. And you just go see if there's a market, you know, throw five or $10 of analytics money and see if anyone is interested. I, I, I think that has helped me understand some of my ideas might be really close to my heart, but might not be interesting to anyone else. And then some ideas that I don't actually think might work actually might prove to work. And I've had some good experience from that so far. Yeah. I, I love the painted door test. It's a really easy way. I, I, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet in the episodes, but there's a website called card and it is fantastic for putting up a landing page. Probably take you right. If you don't go too far down, like an hour or two max, and you can put one of these landing pages up and, and then you can throw some, you know, ads at it and see what happens. As far as when I look back and I think of even just, just me launching kind of my first SaaS, one of the things that I realized was, you know, if I could show somebody and just get, just get, have a conversation and show somebody kind of some idea of what I'm was building, that was so helpful in validating the idea. So again, when I got started, it was really Photoshop and some of these really tougher tools to kind of move around. But man, when Adobe XD came out, that was like a game changing moment for me. And so I just tinker around with ideas. Now you should not use Adobe XD, Figma, right? It's all about Figma and they, they will not change even though they were recently purchased. You know, Figma will change Adobe. We know that's, that's how it's gonna work. So but what you can do is just, I mean, Figma is free today. Why not? And what's what's one wonderful is there's also all these kits on Figma. So if you go to the community tab, you look, they actually have pre-built kits. So pretty quick, you can actually through the, just drag and drop. You don't have to design it, kind of, kind of put together a concept. And then as you're going out and maybe showing that concept to people, and this is what I did really early on, I, I wanted to create this little widget that went on a church website. I was able to iterate really quick and I would show it to people. And the best people I showed it to 
was not friends and family and, you know, close relations because they're just wanting to support you and be an encouragement. So they'll look at it and they'll be like, awesome. What you want to do is show it to people who, right, they're, they're who you think is your main use case. And that's what I did. I went to a bunch of pastors and I asked a very important question. I actually, I, I got this from a podcast. I'm trying trying my best to remember. It's one of those podcasts from a long time ago. But I remember him, the, the speaker on the podcast said, you know, the best thing you can do when you're selling software, you say, if I build it, will you buy it? So that's one of the things I started to do. Hey, if I actually built this, would you purchase it? And then they have to make a decision where your friends and family, you know, they're, they're just, they're encouraged. They're trying to encourage you. They're not really stuck in the SaaS space. And yeah. so for me with validating, you know, Figma, get the concept done and then go find people who would be that ideal customer and try to see, would they be willing to put any money down? Dan, when you're talking to these pastors, are you showing them kind of like these wireframes and walking through it? Are you giving them a device and they're clicking the links? Like what, what is that experience like for the person you are meeting with? Yeah, it, it's Zoom. I just take Zoom, I pull it up and Adobe XD, it's hard to tell that the, our Figma and Adobe XD, it almost looks like live software. And if you don't really, if you don't really know software well, you kind of think, oh, Dan just showed me, you know, a page of software. And so I actually didn't, I, I it was MVP concept. So I just put up some screenshots and kind of walk people through there. I know Google, what they recommend when they're doing some validation tests, they just say, take like, if they're doing an app, take like three by five cards and draw out the experience on card by card. And then you actually show it to someone and say, hey, click, let's go through that experience. They actually do it through cards. But what I would do is I just, you know, pull up in Zoom, show, show the Figma file and then walk them through and just try to get their thoughts. And it's funny, I, the, the the product was a plan your visit. I've talked about it a little bit, but it's basically you go on a website and you can kind of schedule a visit to a, a church. That was a concept I sat on for about a year and a half. I actually built a sermon player, you know, website thing. I I built a, a place where you can download graphics. And it was actually that idea that spent the most time in the validation stage that actually did the best. And I think it's just because it kind of went through this crock pot. It really went through a lot of ideation and testing. And, and sometimes it can feel like, man, speed to getting this thing out. And I, sometimes your best ideas just take a little bit longer and that's okay. So at, at the end of those interviews, when you said, okay, I, I've gotten enough feedback, I'm going to build this thing just for fun, percentage wise, how sure were you that this was going to work? Were you like hundred percent, this is a slam dunk, 10%, I did as much as I can, but we'll see where were you at? That's a good question. I was delusional. So I think if you're going to build software, you have to be a little bit like a little bit crazy. And so I, I would have been like, I'm 80%, like, sure, this is going to work at that point. Now, if it was like the current mindset, I think I'd be like more of like a 50, 50, like there's a really good shot that this is going to work, but I wouldn't be surprised if it just didn't go over. But back then I, I had, I was strong in confidence. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, I, I, I am such a fan of this early early feedback as well. Um, lately, I've been really wrestling with the idea of how to make a college education more affordable in the United States, specifically for for an on-campus dorm-like experience where I think a lot of personal development happens, opposed to community colleges, while still expensive, you can really get the price down and, and commute in. And so I had this big elaborate plan put together. It involved buying a big house in Lake Michigan and having uh, 
students come in and a small group of small cohort of students and kind of like this life skills part of it with parent a parent couple basically running the house almost like this boutique college experience super excited about it and i went over to our local high school which is just around the corner from us and i met with two academic advisors at the high school each each one had been there like 33 years. So we're talking 65 plus years experience between the two of them. And I said, here is this great vision. Please don't be nice, shoot holes in this if there's something wrong with it. As you think about advising seniors, you've done this for 30 plus years each. Is something like this attractive? And I I said, think of the current senior class. How many students in that class do you think would be interested in this? Because I didn't need a lot. It's this boutique experience. I just needed like, hey, yeah, some of every class. And they looked at me after asking some questions and they said, "Eh, maybe one, but that might be a stretch. To which I put my tail between my legs and I walked out the door and I got on with my life. That would have been a super expensive capital-wise endeavor to go on that could have been the next five years of my life. I probably would have figured out the same thing that these 30-plus-year veteran academic advisors would have done. John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate here. Please, please. That two old guys who had given up on future generations and just didn't see it. Like how, how, how many of those would you need to hear is it just one? Because there's some, as an entrepreneur, we all know this, like, and and I think Jonathan mentioned this, and I, I agree with him so much, that you're going to go from failure to failure to failure to failure in order to get to that success. Was well, it the same with validation? You're going to mm-hmm. talk to a lot of people. Like, at what point are you, like, are you going to stop just there? Because I think this is a great idea, man. <laughs> and so is it just talking to two guys? Like, at what point do you, do you feel like you, you have a good pool of, of counsel? Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal question. Um, So often, part of an entrepreneur's job is to see the future that nobody else sees. And so when you describe that future, are they saying no, because that's actually not a good future? Or are they saying no, because they don't have a big enough imagination? That is... That is a great question. Henry Ford has a famous, famous quote. What is it? He said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? We're missing the point when we're we're sometimes missing good feedback when we ask questions that target a vision that people aren't quite imagining. I don't know. Jonathan, Christian, what are your thoughts? How do we ensure we're not just talking to somebody who isn't dreaming enough and is shooting down our idea our idea and that it's actually good feedback yeah no this is really good i i've been going through my head on so many things with like the first question because there's just so much on discovery so much on validation that my brain's going everywhere right now but specifically on this question when do we know you know, when we've gotten enough feedback to understand if something is true or not. The the thing that always gets me, I, I've been in product for quite some time and I've been in large companies. And so a lot of times it's not zero to one. It's we already know who our audience is and let's try something out. The, the beautiful thing about this podcast and the things we're talking about is you're not just validating a product, right? You're, you're validating business. And mm. there's a little bit of a difference in that nuance. And 
when you're when you are a business pioneer, like John was saying, sometimes you've got to see the future that other people's uh, other people don't. The beautiful thing is, I think the more that you're able to clarify the problem you want to solve, the more that you're able to clarify the assumptions you're making, then you can use the data that comes in or the feedback you're getting to find the truth of what's there. So the the hard thing here is a lot of times the products we like aren't great businesses. They're 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 just great ideas. Like kind of like what Dan was saying. If I went to my mom and told her some ideas, she would like it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it'd be a good business. And so one of the very very hard things that pioneers must do, whether you're visioning something out or building something, is creating clarity. And so I think if you can create clarity in the problem that you're solving, so hey, I want to figure out how to make education, college education, affordable to young people, that is a legitimate problem to solve. I, I, I think America would agree that this is a worthwhile problem to solve. I think, John, you've already done a pretty good job of creating clarity there. Now, I think the next step is, what are my assumptions of that? My assumptions would be X, Y, or Z, and all the feedback, all the data, all the input that comes in is there to validate truths, uncover truths. And I think if you use it in that manner, instead of finding answers from people, you find the right tools to create the right answer that maybe no one even knows is needed. And so feedback itself, I don't think should always just be a yes, no, do I want this thing or not? You, The real feedback you're trying to gain is do people really think we have a college problem and do people mm. want to solve that? Is this worth like those are the things in the early stages that I think matter? Because if you fall in love with that problem, the solution will come and the solution comes via failure, kind of like what Dan was saying, right? You're just going to have 50 ideas that suck before you have one that's decent and 50 decent ones before you have one that's good. And maybe you can take the good one to great. I think the stuff that's really important is, hey, how, do you really understand your problem? But to move the conversation forward, once you have something that has some clarity to it, and, and again, I think I talked about this on the last podcast, like this is all about odds, right? We, we talked about, hey, if you were to go study under someone, your odds become higher, but doesn't mean you can't hit now. Same thing, right? So this is all about odds when you're talking about validating ideas. What are some things that maybe you guys have done in the past to actually validate. So so what have you put in front of someone? How did you put it in front of someone? How did you find the right people to put the thing in front of? All of those types of things. And while you guys are talk, thinking about that, I'll, I'll jump in for one really fun one that I did. My buddies and I, we, we built a board game. It was called Aiden Dynasty. It had beautiful artwork, so much lore, and it has never seen the light of day. But we started out, we... we I love board games. I've got way too many board games. I've spent way too much money on pieces of cardboard and wood sitting in my house, but I love it. And so I said, hey, I would love to pay harder and harder and harder board games. And, you know, if Catan is somewhere in the middle, I started moving up into, I don't know, like Power Grid to Hyperborea, Eclipse, Twilight. Now I'm probably thinking about games that most people don't know. And for me, I was like, oh, I wish we could build something even greater. And so we built the hardest game that anyone could ever play because we thought it would be amazing. And we went and we play tested it. 
And when we got to board game stores to actually play test the thing, we realized that a market did not really exist for extremely hard board games that most people could not understand without like a three hour debrief on how to play it. So what we did for the next year was figure out what are the core pieces within board games that people would like. And no one's probably broken down board games like this before, but we said we want a skill to luck ratio that is more skill-based. This is how stupid we got. 60% skill to 40% luck is what we want to shoot for. We want to have communal, so we called it prox proximal community. So we want people to interact with each other. We want there to be a level of mystery. And then we actually created this ideal of what we thought people would like based on the questions that we were asking people. And and you wouldn't think to build board games like this. You normally would say, oh, what's a really fun mechanic and let's build something around it. But for us, we were really excited about the experience that people have when they play games with each other. And we wanted to make the greatest one of all time being the young bucks we were. Th those types of things, I think, you know, getting something in front of someone seeing them try to understand something, not get it, or by the sixth time that we remade the game, the number of people who said without us even asking after they play tested it, how much is this gonna cost and where can I get it? The whole journey in between that was six different versions of a game where it started from something that was way too hard, close to Warhammer, down to a very easy, playable, you could probably buy it at Walmart type game that just had a lot more playability to it. And one of the things that we said, hey, we want the mystery and all that, we started thinking, oh, how could we be innovative on this? So we said, oh, we'll connect it to a phone app and you could buy a different boss in packages of a dollar and we'll release one every year. It'll change the way the board works and things like that. But we knew we wanted a board game. We knew we wanted it to be really fun, but we had no idea what the solution was. We just knew we loved people around the table and the interactions you can get and the depth of relationship of screwing someone over and doing all the fun things you do in a board game. We loved that. And so, yeah, that, that's like an example of some stuff we did. I can go into details if you want further details of like what an actual play test looked like. I've got spreadsheets on how, how long each turn took and how long a game was. And we asked people, how long should a game be per person? All stupid things like that. But I'd love to hear, you know, if you guys have any other things that you guys might have validated to get further clarity on what needs to get built. First off, can we just talk about you built a board game? I just think that's awesome. And it's <laughs> making me think that honestly, it, it's such a good, if you're building a product, if you're, I, I, John, I think most of this is we're assuming you're building some software, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. Board games are kind of like a physical form of software. There's dynamics, there's users, there's an outcome that's intended. And so it's kind of funny. It's actually getting me thinking, like I'm gonna make all my PMs go build a board game. Teach them a lot about, about software development. But John, Jonathan, that was that was fantastic. I don't have anything to add on other than like like I like I, I feel like I know you better now. <laughs> I, and I actually I did the same thing. I actually I, I love Catan. And I love risk. I hated Catan because you couldn't go in and just blow somebody else. So if you if you're not a board game player, I'm sorry, people. We're just we diverge a little bit. I, I like risk because you can take over territories, and I like Catan and I like space. So I I brought all three of those together, and that was Galactic Advance coming to a Kickstarter one day. We'll see. 
And That's I awesome. immediately feel much more inferior because I've only played board games and never tried to build one before. <laughs> I, I will say like to throw one other on the pile. I know we talked about painted door test. I know we've talked about literally building a board game and going through play testing, which is phenomenal in every way. One other thing that I've, I've found some sincere luck with is just conversational testing. Mm. And it's really before you even start to throw an image, I, I have a piece of software that I'm trying to build. And I struggled with the understanding of how the software should physically look. Like I, I threw some, some time down in Figma. I started throwing around some, some ideas. It started with rectangles on the screen, trying to make cool things. And it dawned on me, what I was trying to solve was a problem that, that means that you use the software less, like letting AI actually process a lot of things for you. And what I ended up doing after several hours in Figma was building just a normal UI that you do all these things manually. And I realized when I, I, I sat down with someone and showed them this, I, within just a minute or two, they're like, well, aren't, isn't your software supposed to automate all this? And I was like, oh yeah, like, I guess I kind of forgot that. Like it really is supposed to automate all that. And so what I ended up doing for several other conversations as people were interested is instead of showing them anything, I just asked them, what would you expect to do here? Would you expect to trust the software to do something for you in this scenario? Or would you expect to write something here? Or would you expect the computers to write this message for you? It was all about creating content for you instead of you writing that content. And what times would you end up feeling you would want to interject? Like, would you ever want the software to send messages to your customers on behalf of you? Or would you want to always intervene before sending? What I ended up finding a lot of a success with was just asking questions, especially just because I struggled with what should this UI look like? Like, what should the product look like? And 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 so on my eventual painted door test, it actually didn't include a single screenshot of anything. It was just a logo and a bunch of text. And, and it's rolling okay. Like, it's going well. I feel like it's a longer play because I'm still building up my understanding of what people would expect and even what they're comfortable with. But it's it's just one other option too. Yeah, and in that conversational testing, you're not talking about even putting anything in front of them. You're just talking, you know, over dinner or whatever it is. Hey, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, it. yeah. I mean, I think there's so much to that. True, to, to that. I was a few weeks ago enjoying our Michigan summer here with some friends out on a boat in Lake Michigan, and I said, okay, I have this product idea, and it, it centered around my new role, which is starting a startup business incubator in a college setting and thinking, okay, email, everybody gets about a thousand emails a day. I want to break through the noise. How can I do that? We need some sort of mass texting solution to be able to get through that. And so I'm talking about this and how would it work and would people be able to reply to it? And, and they're asking questions. And about halfway through, I realized I'm not actually sure what I'm building because they're asking questions that are focused around how do you know who else is in the text thread? Because they're, they're feeling this problem of they get a text from somebody with 18 other people on it and they have a bunch of numbers and they have no idea whose name corresponds to that number. It's a real problem in our world. Yes. I, however, am trying to solve a different problem of one-way communication to a bunch of people. And these two problems are mixed. So all of a sudden, I realize as I'm talking about one problem, they're hearing a different problem. 
And that allowed me to take a giant step forward in either realizing, hey, the problem I'm chasing isn't the real problem, I need to pivot, or, oh, I see where it's rubbing up against this other one, I need to I need to very intentionally steer clear of that and just solve this one thing. I remember a story of Steve Jobs with the iPhone. He, prior to it coming out in 2007, just had conversation after conversation with people about what the iPhone would be. And every time somebody looked at him with a confused face as he was talking, he realized these aren't the right words. And every time he saw somebody lean in and start to nod, he realized, yep, that's the thing. Not only did I'm sure that help him build the right thing, but it meant that when he took the stage in 2007 to present the iPhone, it was one of the greatest product reveals in all of history because it wasn't his first time. It probably wasn't even his first 50th time. He had presented this likely hundreds of times until all the confused faces disappeared and were replaced by excited faces because he tweaked his language and refined his problem statement enough to hit the nail directly on the head and absolutely explode into the smartphone market. And so conversational research is huge. All right, I have a question. Someone in this room said, not long ago, founders are delusional. I completely agree. We have a optimistic, delusional optimism that makes us believe that we can actually create world-changing products. And you need that as a founder. That rubs up against this research idea though, because research is inherently saying, you don't have all the answers, you don't know what you need to know, go figure it out. Is there a point where gut needs to trump data? And you just say, I feel this thing inside of me and I'm going to build it even though nobody understands it because when I build it, they will come. Is there ever a point where you just need to go build the thing and not meet with another person? I am a builder. I hate research and I hate pulling data and it's been good for me, but at a certain point, you just got to build. I will say for myself, I think there's a couple caveats that I can throw around and maybe I'm just an excuse driven person just because I'm wanting to build something. It's easy for me to justify things. But what I will say is if within just a couple of, within a short time period of putting a painted door test live, if I get enough signups, I'm just going to go build the thing because it proved that people are interested enough. And especially for a few of these painted door tests, I've been putting, hey, here's what this subscription costs. Ideally, I would think it would be, would cost. And if people still sign up, there's some significant interest there. There's people willing to maybe spend some money there. And so I will say like for one of mine, within three weeks, I ended up getting 80 signups. I'm building that thing right now. And I stopped all the conversations for a bit because I just want to get in the trenches and build it. There's enough interest there. What I will say is for another idea though, I thought this was my amazing, world-changing, phenomenal idea. And I have nine signups right now. And it's been live since January. Literally, if you're listening now, that's 10 months ago. That tells me that there's not a whole lot of interest or I'm marketing it or communicating about it the wrong way. But there are times I think that you got to trust your gut. I mean. I say that like to the two product guys in the room, what's your thoughts? Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Jonathan. 
I'll, I'll do mine really quick. So, so, so I think I, I think this is always a hard one, right? I, I, I am a product guy, so I'll definitely lean on the research side of things. But if you learn to build wisely, so MVPs, just enough, 60%, just to see. I think learning how to do those things very cheaply, that is actually one of the best ways to get good research. So it, it is okay, I think, to build. I think my word of caution, and this is purely subjective and coming from a product person, like I wouldn't go further than like 50, 60% or something, right? I, I just want to validate if people get it, if the thing is good enough. And I think if you got a really strong gut feeling like, man, people just don't, they're not able to see what I'm seeing. Like if I'm able to put something in front of them, like I, I think they'd get it. Learning how to, like it's a skill set, learning how to go codeless, learning how to find and ask favors of friends who know how to code if you don't know how to code and, and just getting something just enough or, or you know, learning how to use Envision or Figma like we talked about, like to, to get something there to get some kind of feedback. My gut would say if you go further than that, there is the consequence of deeply falling in love with your solution, which then at that point, it's really, it's at, at, you're trying to figure out how to make the solution work as opposed to how do I find the right solution for the problem. And so my gut would norm normally say, let's go research first. We don't even know what the right solution is yet. We'll figure it all out. But that's not to say that that's the only way to do it. But if you do go down the other way, I think it's wise to limit how much you build and to what fidelity you build in. So Christian, well, you're, say, you're saying on your side, hey, I'm going to put up a fake door test. If I even get some bullet, like a decent number of bullets being fired at me, I don't care if they're hitting bullseye or not. I'm just going to build the thing because I'll figure out the rest later. Then you're, you're saying that maybe not totally different but skewing more towards the research side saying, you know, you should really research this a bit more, which, you know, Christian, you're coming from an engineering perspective, Jonathan, you're coming from a product perspective. Those differences absolutely make sense given your disciplines. Dan, I know you're coming from a product perspective. Yeah. Where do you fall here? I'm going to come in really heavy. I'm just a cautionary tale. It's really, and this is just true life. Okay. I've sat down with my wife and we're like, I know we could have paid off the house, okay? I mean, this is speaking to Jonathan. So I had to learn this lesson the really hard way. What Christian, you get, we, we got to understand about Christian, he's always talking about sweat equity, right? So he's just talking about sweat equity. So it's like, it's it's weakened. That's the, that's being a founder developer. It's like a superpower, but you, you know, we know that movie field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. That doesn't work in product. It just doesn't. And at some point you have to build distribution in. So either you're going to figure it out at the beginning, like how do I get people to actually come in? And it's a great time, like figure out the landing page, learn how to sell people on something. And the worst case scenario is they're going to click on something that says coming soon, take a survey. I mean, that's superhuman. So I've, I've been hurt. I, I mean, literally there's been three products. I spent way more time, way more money. And, and, and what happens is we, as humans, we really fall into the sunk, we're, we're bad at the sunk cost fallacy. So we'll keep pushing on something only because we put time and resources into it, not because it's a good idea. And so it's 
better to just validate, just trust me on this one. Cause you have a good idea on you and it's probably the quantity of ideas leads to the quality of ideas. So why not just validate a couple, get through them real quick and get to that really good idea. Get to that really, and I've had a, I've had to learn this in me, John, you've been, I've spitballed ideas with you. I'm going to do some painted door tests, you know, this coming week. I've already, I already know what vertical I'm looking at. I'm pretty excited about it, but I refuse to put any code, any significant time. The best thing I can do, like literally is, you know, I'm going to go and put together a pitch deck that kind of describes the problem. And then I'm gonna get to the point where, hey, will you give me money? And if I can't get anybody to say, yeah, I'll write you a check for X, I'm not gonna build the thing. There's no way. That That's an interesting perspective on actually throwing together the sales perspective before you even build the thing. The only thing I'll throw out just to kind of push a point a little bit is on the building, it is so easy to work hard and not to work smart. And for the record, I work mm-hmm. hard a lot. <laughs> I don't always work smart. What I will say is because I have a full-time job and I love my career, I have very limited time. And as I'm building these products, I'm trying to be very wise in what I'm spending time doing. So what I actually have done is I've put together Kanban boards with the tasks that I need to complete. And I actually put timers on those tasks and I put that on my phone. And if I can't complete that task within that timer, I skip it and move on. And I will say it's helped me to not fall because I agree like one of my biggest concerns is that I fall in love with the solution that I'm building and I fall in love with every tiny little pixel or every tiny little piece of logic and the problem with that is like two of the ideas like I've not really validated a ton I've got a ton of interest I've navigated a few questions to ask so far but I think you have to be super super minimal with what you do build and try to limit it like like, don't feel like you have to build everything yourself. There's a trillion third parties oh, out there. Christian, what's the benefit though? Like, is it just giving that user, like, why, why would I put up, I, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to understand, like, I, again, if I'm always thinking about energy and cost and like, why would I go build something and put that significant? Cause even if it's a low code, it's still about 10 X than landing page or pitch deck. If I have to go in person like if that's not working what why do i need to build out any any code or any experience like what would be i I, just give me a scenario where it's a a good thing jonathan where a pitch deck or a painted door test or that isn't enough so i i i i really land somewhere in the middle of you guys because i i I lean towards research but i i know that sometimes something tangible will line the circuits in someone's brain to realize a problem they didn't even realize they were having like like Dropbox, right? No amount of sales pitches would have gotten anyone to understand Dropbox, just like Henry Ford, right? People were saying, give me faster horses. They were saying, give me a smaller thumb drive that could hold more data. And no one could even comprehend what cloud was. And so in some areas, there is a little bit of value in something tangible. My thing is, I just wouldn't put in much equity into that. And that's where I lean more with Dan, right? Like Envision, Figma is enough for me to fake something for someone to at least conceptually understand. But I do think when you go up to someone, if you have something tangible, you're going to get much better feedback. 
So, uh, so what I'm hearing is, in the, so I, just to validate, I would probably spend the same amount of time in Figma. I think this is just us both using our, our both our same ways. I think I'd spend the same, I'd spend 10 hours in Figma and you're like, Dan, I'm going to spend 10 hours in code. Yeah. And so I don't know where you're at and you may need to spend a hundred bucks on Fiverr, right? So you may not be a designer or a coder, but yeah. I think we're in the same time constraints. I think you nailed something interesting there. Because you come from more of the design aspect and you're and you're a heck of a designer, man. I am not. I come from the code side where I'm using a UI kit and doing it for me. It is the piece where I could do things in Figma. I can I can get work done. You know, I, I'm decent at it. But I feel like my time would be better spent at just getting the thing out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the other side of it is like there's this innate nature that I just want to see this. Like I want to see it myself. But the other side of it is also the side of if I'm going to spend time actually throwing some ideas around, again, going back to the fact that I already have proven that, you know, I've got 80 people on a, on a sign up list. The website said or the landing page right before you get to the, the email address to add your waiting list was 49 bucks a month and 80 people signed up within three weeks. That gave me enough validation to just go build the thing. And so I feel like that was a, I, I did a few customer, a few, few people were interested enough to chat. The rest, you know, I put onto a Discord channel and we just have been chatting in the background and I'm building publicly to those people. But what I will say is, I felt like I could get something, a win to these people, kind of strike while the iron is hot, so to speak, while I could also try to limit how much that there is. Like my expectations to them is you're going to be privately testing this sucker for a long time. You know, it's not going to be beautiful yet. And that was my, it's just, I, I'm not nearly as skilled at Figma. I could spend that many hours doing prototyping or I could just mm-hmm. go get it done. True. And so, and third parties. I think it's the third parties. Like, don't try to build everything yourself. Like, outsource. Outsource all you can to little services that can do things for you. And you can refactor it in a way that you could bring them in-house someday. But just get it. Get it. Get it live. Okay. So I'm struggling a little bit with my personal experience with how this lines up. And so I'm, I'm just... Rather than arguing for or against anything, I'm just going to throw it out there and then please dissect it. I know best practice. With product. I know you're supposed to research. Don't say it, John. Don't say it. <laughs> In Building Breeze, which oh. is the company <laughs> that I built and and then sold last year, I I was the customer. And so I deeply understood the problem. Uh, to a degree, I'd even say, actually, I was a youth pastor. So I understood part of the church. I didn't do any secretarial work or you know, on that side. I did some admin work as youth pastor. Anyways, I start building it. January 2012, I talked to zero people throughout that process. And when I got to month seven, and this was nights and weekends, like this a good amount of time. Like you could have done something different during this time for sure. Like, you know, built a house or something, but you get to month seven and I emailed out my friends who are not church staff people, and said, hey, would you use this? What do you think? I'd love feedback. Then in month eight, I started meeting with different pastors at Starbucks in the area and getting some feedback and made some tweaks, relatively minor though, before actually launching it and starting to get traction. And so as I look at that, this was absolutely fire first, aim later type situation. Well, I hold on, hold on, hold on. And I know I did it wrong, but 
it worked. Whoa, and whoa. so I did a wrong compared to the product. Okay, hold on. That's exhibit A. Here's exhibit B. Exhibit B, we're you know, seven years into Breeze and COVID comes up. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, first half of 2020. And maybe second half, realizing, no, first half. And re- looking around, I'm seeing, hey, churches are doing a really good job getting their sermons online, thanks to things like Facebook Live and YouTube and, you know, all the stuff. But all their websites say, see you 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning at our church. Nobody's going to be there, right? And so it built a super simple JavaScript snippet churches could throw onto their website. We called it LiveBar. I didn't do any research for that. Zero, zero. I don't even know if I had a conversation with someone. I, I think I was, I think I actually was quarantined in my house writing that code during that time. All right, third one. Churches start to open up a bit more and there's all this social distancing and spreading people out across multiple services and locations. And I'm looking at this thinking like, okay, this is silly. Churches need a tool to help them do this so that they're not like turning people away at the door or whatever. And so I had a, f- a conversation or two. Then I saw Life Church release something like this in, in their app. I'm like, that's it. That, that's all the validation I need. And we built it. And and it we already had this channel this of introducing people to the product just like we did with LiveBar because the same people were using um, uh, that use those products were using the base product breeze and it got crazy traction so all three of these products had broadly speaking very little research that went into them yet all three of them had significant adoption am i the hat trick of anomalies or is there something to this how how do I have this experience yet know that Jonathan. it deviates from the product process? Okay, I'm gonna Dan. go real quick. Jonathan, go, go, quick go. Because I think your, I think you, Discovery gets this bad rep. And I'm gonna let Jonathan, because Jonathan is, if there's an expert in the room on Discovery, it's Jonathan. There's this idea that Discovery is this really like long period of time. And you have to go through this specific step-by-step process. If you don't do it completely Marty Kagan style to the nth degree, you haven't done discovery. But John, I've talked to you about this. I became a student of Breeze. Like as a staff member on Monday mornings, what would you guys talk about? This is pre-Breeze at your church you're serving at. What was the frustration in those staff meetings? That's true. We would each, it was Tuesday mornings, we would circle up and we would talk about what went well and what went poorly that weekend. And the yeah. database came up week after week after week. That's discovery. And what what I my thought would be is you did do discovery. You just didn't do it in this way that, right? We went through this, 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 this specific process, but you're, you were always doing discovery, right? And I would say you did it but maybe you didn't call it discovery, whether that was, you know, the little bar up top. Well, you had been on a hundred thousand websites where you're looking for software for Breeze. And you know what? You saw this little bar and you knew they're effective. And so you've been doing discovery. And even with Life Church, that was discovery. One of the largest churches in America found this to be useful. So you knew hundreds of thousands of people were probably using this little thing across all of their campuses. Well, that's validation. That's discovery. So that's what I would say with that. Like, don't, equate that you are a one hit wonder. You're just really good at bringing discovery into a natural flow of your life. You're really good at testing. And my hunch is you're always doing this. It's just now become like breathing to you where you're just kind of always in the state of discovery. 
Okay. So for a listener who says, I'm super optimistic about my idea. I think it's going to work. I've worked with products like this. I feel this pain point. Dan says, I've actually been doing discovery for years. I don't need to do any testing. I'm just going to build it. Christian, what tools do I use? Right? Like, how does, how does one have enough self-insight to differentiate a problem they see in the world that they want to just chase versus a problem that they see in the world that they need to research more. So Jonathan. Yeah. So, so I'll jump in here. I'm going to answer something before, and then I'll jump into what you just asked. So with, with breeze, I, I agree with Dan. I think there was a lot of discovery there, but the way that you described it, once you started putting keyboard to screen, you were almost shut off and just kind of doing this whole thing. My whole thing with product and my whole thing with business is that just like life, it's just odds. If you get some kind of degree, your odds of having X amount of dollars coming in and some kind of like, it's just high, like everything is about odds. And so I have seen one hit wonders happen all around me. I actually had a friend of mine who just made some video 3D art NFT things that he didn't talk to nobody and he's going to be set and he doesn't do no discovery whatsoever. And when I looked at it, I was like, nobody wants that, bro. So if he thought he was doing discovery with me, he probably wouldn't have made it. But it's, it's all about odds. And I think, John, your first example of Breeze is actually highly different from the other two because what happens is... The first one, when you're creating Breeze, you're really going zero to one. You're going from no business to some kind of business. You're going from this doesn't exist to this is now existing and I'm creating some kind of customer base and user base. When you're talking about Live Bar, RSVP Church, I mean, even Loop, those are like, you have people, you have your audience and you've deeply been understanding them for years. And so you can just say they need this and you can just build it and you know who's going to buy it because you're building it for the people you've already built it for. If you were to do something like Breeze again, let's say with schools, education, and you're going from zero to one today, if you go back down into your basement, lock yourself in a room and you start coding, your odds of hitting are the same or maybe probably a little worse than what you had at Breeze. It's just that at Breeze... It did work out and those happen and it's great, but the odds are the same. So, so the, to the person out there who's thinking, and we talked about this last time, John, you actually had years of experience and deep understanding of the space and the vertical and the vertical is one that was severely behind technologically. And so even if you made something mediocre, if you could sell it well enough, you could probably make it. If you're looking for a vertical to make, I'm just kidding. But if you're, if you're looking at like, healthcare and you're trying to do the same thing severely behind technology technology technologically but now there's all that red tape around it who are you gonna you know understand all the hipaa and all that stuff those are just odds and so when you're going and building a business the way that i always see it is where is there a huge market better odds where is there a problem and are there competitors and what do they have oh it's not that good and i see reviews and people hate it better odds. Now I'm going to go ask them if I built something, if they would like it or not. They tell me better odds. And so there's never a right moment to pull the lever. And as an entrepreneur, that is something 
there's a reason why there are a lot of entrepreneur wannabes who think and have a million ideas and very few people who actually go out and do it and an even smaller sector of people who succeed in it because it's a leap of faith at some point no matter because you will never validate something 100% that's just not how business works so there is a risk at some point and that level of risk especially for you John when you were younger is something that you can jump off for a 30% chance and probably do you probably wouldn't do well maybe you could but let's say you didn't sell a company you might not take that leap and and so that is something that i think is true for everyone and it's all about managing what that is and if you're in entrepreneurship if you're in wanting to build a business it is a risk that you have to take that that's there's no way around that there is no foolproof safe business that you could ever build. That's just, it's just not the way it works. Yeah. So Jonathan, you're basically saying in my example, hey, I might've been at, given that I was working at a church, maybe that puts me at, let's say hundred percent, as you know, this thing's going to work. Maybe working at a church puts me at 20%. Seeing the database issue firsthand brings it up to 35%. And understanding technology well moves it up to 45% let's say that that was my launching off point. You're saying basically, had I done some more research ahead of time, I could have gotten that up to 55, 60, 70% and launched from that point and probably have hit the bullseye a bit more direct than some of the pivots that needed to come later. Yeah. And, and there is a opportunity cost to all that, right? Like if you would have hit the bullseye harder, would you have completely dominated the market and, made something bigger who knows if you waited too long would you have missed your window of opportunity where you know the market was ripe for something new and you know SaaS, as you know it today it, it's it's a very crowded marketplace now in most places and so there, yeah it, you, mm -hmm. you got to figure out when to pull the lever so to use that same analogy sometimes wait it's just time starts to bring it from 55 percent back down to 40 yeah. or 30%. And so you've got to know when to fire, even if you don't have all the pieces, which we never do. Cool. This is a fantastic conversation. Hopefully this has been helpful to listeners as you think about what ideas you have. How do you actually test them? How do you move them as forward as far as possible before you invest hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars into it? How do you figure out if it's not going to work? How do you pivot? And how do you ultimately change the world for good with that idea when it does come to fruition, when it does come to market. Thank you all for listening and have a lovely rest of your day.